Hi, I'm Dr. Paula Redmond, a clinical psychologist, and you're listening to the When Work Hurts podcast. On this show, I want to explore the stories behind the statistics of the mental health crisis facing healthcare professionals today, and to provide hope for a way out through compassion, connection, and creativity. Join me as I talk to inspiring clinicians and thought leaders in healthcare about their unique insights and learn how we can support ourselves and each other when work hurts. Facing racism is unfortunately a very live and present issue for many NHS staff today. To understand more about this, I spoke with Owen Chinambiri, who is a trained occupational therapist originally from Zimbabwe and now based at the NHS Race and Health Observatory. Just as a heads up, we obviously do talk about racism and some of the upsetting impacts of this throughout the episode. I started by asking Owen about his current role. I lead on everything digital health and data related in the Race and Health Observatory. So I'll tell you just a little bit about the Race and Health uh, Observatory. And I think it's important to mention at this point that uh, I'm here in a personal capacity. I'm not representing uh, the Race and Health Observatory. So everything I'm going to be saying is what Owen thinks, not what the recent health observatory thinks. Uh, in, in February 2020, uh, the British Medical Journal published a special edition that was called Racism in Medicine. And uh, in it, it looked at uh, ethnic inequalities in the NHS from a workforce perspective and uh, from a patient outcomes perspective. The key thing to note that at that point, that was before COVID had become the pandemic that we know it to be today and that uh, uh, George Floyd hadn't been killed yet. So at that point, there was enough evidence to have a recommendation that the NHS needed to have an independent body that focused on tackling uh, ethnic uh, health inequalities. So the Racing Health Observatory was born, and then uh, my role in there is focusing, as I said, on uh, digital health and, and data. Is racism a problem in the NHS? Uh, I think the way I'll answer your question is, uh, what is racism? Which I know will be like, uh, sound like a cop-out. Uh, I was reading, uh, in preparation for this, uh, I was reading a document by Penn Candola, and I said the challenge is what people define as racism is the blatant, the obvious, uh, getting code names. That's what people see as racism. However, the modern racism is a little bit more subtle than that. It's a little bit more more innocuous. There's a research that was done which asked people from an ethnic minority background to say, right, uh, what do you perceive as racism at work? And some of the answers were people reported that being ignored because of your color, uh, being overly criticized and managed uh, more than not to happen to someone from a different ethnicity, uh, assumptions being made about your role or your job. Uh, I'll give you an example on that. Like uh, I remember one colleague who's, uh, who's a doctor when uh, uh, he was walking around and someone immediately assumed that he was a nurse. And then uh, it was obvious why. And just say, look, I'm dressed as a doctor. What would make you think uh, that, uh, uh, that I'm a nurse? So those are some of the things that people define as racism. Insensitive race-related jokes and banter people not recognizing your face, uh, being passed over for promotion, uh, missing out on, on training opportunities, 
And uh, one of the big ones is uh, patients refusing uh, to be seen by staff from an ethnic minority background. So with those things in perspective, does racism exist in the NHS? Yes, it does, because all those things happen. We might not have people walking around the NHS uh, calling people the N-word or something like that, but that doesn't mean there isn't uh, racism in the NHS. It exists in more subtle ways, which are people from an ethnic minority background uh, No, One point I'd make is like, uh, these issues have been known for a long time. I think uh, when we were preparing for this uh, podcast, we had a discussion about it, and I told you that uh, the oldest paper that I've read was written in 1982, and it was called uh, Racism in Nursing. And what it found is that uh, uh, when they talked to black nurses and midwives, they found, uh, this is a quotation right from the paper, they all told the same story of continual job rejections, difficulties ac being accepted for post-basic training, and poor promotion prospects. So this was in 1982, and that is still happening to this day. So we know this has been around, um, you know, for a long time, and that at the beginning of 2020, there was a recognition that something needed to be done about this. Um, and you've given, you know, a lot of examples that are, you know, difficult to kind of hear. I'm wondering about your reflections on the last couple of years and, and what we've learned through COVID and, and the Black Lives Matter movement that, you know, what your thoughts are on yeah, so, how uh, that's shaped things. So what I'd say is uh, uh, one thing we know is uh, when, when COVID uh, started uh, quite early on, uh, it became apparent that... Uh, NHS staff from an ethnic minority background have been disproportionately affected. And uh, when we look at the data now, uh, you can see that uh, in particular nurses from a Filipino background and uh, uh, doctors from an Asian background died in much, much higher rates than uh, all, other, all other ethnicities. And early on, uh, when I think the first three doctors who died were all of an Asian, uh, Asian background, uh, we could clearly see what was going to going to happen uh, because there was evidence that we know that uh, when things go wrong in the NHS, uh, people from an ethnic minority background uh, get to be affected uh, significantly, significantly more. What that told me is even though we knew we could feel it, I think uh, more could have been done. Uh, we should have anticipated it. We've got enough information to tell us that uh, uh, we could have done we could have done something and as covid went on and the data became more apparent that uh, people from an ethnic background not just in the nhs but in general were getting affected more uh, people were almost shocked by some of the data that was coming out and it showed me that there seems to be like a, a lack of awareness of some of the ethnic inequalities that, that exist. So for people like me, as I've said, we knew it was going to happen. But when the data started coming out, it was almost like a, a, a shock that, oh, why is this happening? People almost uh, almost didn't understand. And then compounded by uh, the death of George Floyd, there was almost like a mass awakening. There was an almost a, a global epiphany that, oh, guess what? We've got uh, ethnic health 
of inequalities. And as already mentioned, these have existed for, for more than 40 years. And for me, that's, that has been my lesson over the past two years, that uh, these inequalities exist, but for some reason, either people willfully or unintentionally are not aware of them. So there is something that needs to be done. Reflecting on what you were saying about what happened in COVID, and, and we know that, um, you know, staff who were from um, minority ethnic backgrounds were dying in greater proportions than than white staff. And I, I remember kind of reading about it at the time, and I think, you know, that there was narratives around you know, linking that to health inequalities that, you know, people from minority ethnic backgrounds had more health complications and therefore were at greater risk of um, death from COVID. But I guess what I've learned more recently, and in particular the video you shared with me, which was really striking of narratives of healthcare staff during that time, um, the evidence of, of, of... people being treated very differently, of being placed at greater risk, of not given being given access to appropriate PPE, um, which is a much more uncomfortable <laughs> explanation. Yes. So if you look at uh, the latest NHS staff survey data, of which I'll put a link in, uh, there are questions which specifically look at uh, at COVID. So I've got data for last year. I haven't looked at the data for this year, the most recently published data. But what we know is that according to uh, that staff survey, people from an ethnic minority background, they were more likely to work on COVID wards and they were more likely uh, to be redeployed to work on, or on COVID wards. Whether that's what directly resulted uh, in the disproportionately being represented, I cannot say for sure. But what we do know is that that's what people say were happening, that if you're from an instrument background, you're more likely to end up working on a COVID order and you're more likely to be redeployed to work on a COVID order. And I think the impact that this has, uh, if we talk about not just COVID, but racism in general. So if you look at it at a personal level, People start feeling dis- disillusioned. Uh, people are unhappy. People get depressed. It's uh, a lack of confidence, sometimes anger, and uh, people don't believe in the system anymore. And that can that can have serious challenges for the system. So if you look at things such as staff retention, uh, sickness, and then uh, the financial cost associated uh, with that. So that's how like. Racism impacts people at a personal level. People go to work and they're doing a good job and they're feeling that, oh, look, I'm putting in all this effort for the system, but the system does not value me and the system is not working. It's not working for me. It's not a, a good feeling uh, uh, to have in the research in the research backstage. And I guess there's also something about um, the makeup of potentially of staff in services, particularly when we get to you know, more senior levels, not being representative of the wider staff group. Um, you know, so so I guess if, if you're not able to see yourself or someone like yourself working in senior positions, um, I guess I'm imagining that, that that can create a real sense of, of disillusionment and disengagement from the process of career progression. We know that uh, if you look at the workforce race equality standard data, 
that uh, people from an ethnic minority background are significantly underrepresented uh, in senior pay bands. We know that uh, they're less likely to be appointed to a role if they get shortlisted. Uh, we know that they're more likely to be disciplined. And uh, we know that uh, they're significantly less likely to believe that their organization uh, provides provides equal, equal opportunities. So for me, there's three uh, problems with that. So one is the personal one at a personal level. So you know that I'm doing the right thing. Uh, for some reason, I'm just not getting promoted. Uh, at times, we've got examples of uh, people who talk about uh, being frog-lipped, is that the term? Frog-lipped by people who either qualified after them, and then after a few years, they get promoted and start managing them. And like, oh, wait a minute, uh, uh, this person was a student uh, a few years ago, and uh, now they're managing me. So that, uh, uh, that happens a lot, and it can be very, very demoralizing. Then the other problem is... Uh, uh, we know that uh, there are benefits to having uh, a diverse leadership. So McKinsey has done a lot of work on this. What they found is, uh, I think their most recent paper is called Diversity Wins. So once again, I'll, I'll send you the link to it. Uh, they looked at uh, more than a thousand companies across 12, uh, 12 countries, I think in the initial research. I think the later research has looked at even more companies. Uh, the companies that were in the top quartile for gender diversity were 20% more likely to overperform. So if you're in the top quartile, so this is really important. So this is not uh, just having one or two talking women on the board. No, this is like being in the top quartile uh, for gender diversity. You're 20% more likely to overperform. And then the companies that were in the top quartile for ethnic diversity, we're 33% more likely to, to ever overperform. So what this means is there are bene clear benefits to having diversity in, in leadership. So by not having a lot of people from an ethnic minority background in leadership positions, we are missing out on that, uh, on that benefit. Then the third issue that uh, I always talk about is one of blind spots. So uh, I'll, I'll give you one non-related example, then I'll come back to one like uh, NHS-related example. So there's a uh, work that was done looking at uh, the crash, that had, the financial crash in 2009. And one of the things they found is that because uh, of the homogeneity of uh, the leadership in banks at that time, they had massive blind spots at what was happening on the ground. So they could not see what was coming. So a lot of the, if, uh, the leadership may be more diverse and they were having conversations with people outside their bubble, they might have been able to see uh, some of those challenges earlier. Then when it comes to the NHS, I remember visiting one uh, trust in London. And uh, at the time, uh, the, uh, we met the staff network for staff from an ethnic minority background. And when we're talking to them about what their fears were, one of the things that they brought out is that uh, uh, they lived in an area which had quite, uh, at the time, high rates of uh, uh, stabbings of black of black children. So where parents were there, were saying, look, I'm really worried that if I'm at work, uh, if my phone rings after three, my heart skips a bit because I'm thinking, oh, look, maybe something has happened to my son, that type of thing. So this is something they were genuinely worried about. When we met the senior leadership team of that organization, uh, they were all white. And uh, most of them, except one, commuted into the area. So they didn't live there. They were not even 
aware of these challenges that uh, their members of staff were worried about because it was not part of who they were. So they had a massive blind spot as to something that was really, really affecting their workforce. So that's one of the challenges of having uh, a senior leadership team that's not uh, a representative of the workforce or the community that uh, unintentionally you can have you can have the, these blind spots. We've, we've touched on uh, different areas of um, identity and diversity there, but I wonder about people who have multiple minority identities, if we're thinking about intersectionality, um, what your observations are around that. I think, uh, once again, data, the, the latest data from the RES report uh, sort of covers intersectionality. And the data is very clear that Black women in particular have got the worst experience in the in the NHS. They're least likely to be represented in senior positions. They report uh, the highest rates of uh, bullying and harassment from patients and from colleagues, and they're least likely to uh, uh, believe in equal opportunities. I know that some of the data actually is uh, uh, people from a gypsy background. We take our people from a gypsy background. If you look at ethnic minorities, black women are the ones who are most uh, who've got the worst uh, uh, the worst experience. So I think someone causes the multiplying effect that uh, for every uh, protected characteristics you have, it means you're way way more likely to have the least positive experience uh, in the in the NHS. And then also uh, something that I always talk about is there's something called the glass cliff. So the glass cliff, it's a, it's a research-backed phenomenon which shows that uh, people, either women or people from an ethnic background or women from an ethnic background as well, tend to be uh, disproportionately represented in the most challenging leadership, uh, leadership positions. And as a result, they tend to be uh, overly scrutinized and uh, they do not get recognized for, for the work that they do. As you know, we, we live in a world where like, uh, uh, people look at your CV and say, oh, look, uh, this person used to work at this very challenged organization. And uh, they, would, they would want to work with you. So, oh, look, we know that this organization had a history of really poor care. And as a result, I think uh, the glass cliff talks about it becomes a rigged leadership test, as it were, that uh, people from an ethnic background, women end up working in very challenged positions, which makes it even more likely for them to uh, to succeed. Or maybe the way that their success uh, is shown is slightly different. And therefore, this compounds even the challenge they have of trying to 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 progress. So to summarize, yes, the more uh, uh, protected characteristics someone has. Uh, the more difficult it is going to be uh, uh, for you. And I think one of the things we need to start doing is uh, having those nuanced uh, discussions in a way that uh, uh, everyone understands. That look, if you're an ethnic minority woman, if you're someone who's disabled and you're a woman, if you're disabled and you're from an ethnic minority background, it means that uh, the challenges you face are actually multiplied. So clearly... You know, racism is bad for staff and, you know, we've heard how it, it's also bad for services and organisations as a whole. Is there any data around the impact on, on patients and patient care? Actually, there is. And uh, when uh, 
Sir, Sir Robert Francis was looking at uh, some of the failures of Mid Staffordshire, uh, looking at whistleblowing and uh, the freedom to speak up what they did there. Uh, what they discovered is that uh, ethnic minority staff were more likely to be victimized if they spoke up about uh, uh, poor care. They were less likely to be praised if they spoke up about poor care. And as a result, they were almost half as likely to speak up about uh, poor care because they were afraid that they'd be victimized or they wouldn't be wouldn't be praised. Uh, and that's not something you want. You want to be able to know that uh, uh, everyone working in the NHS feels empowered to speak up and to whistleblow when they see when they see poor care. There's also work that was done by uh, Professor Dawson and Professor West, where they were looking at uh, staff survey and patient survey uh, results and trying to see what the correlations were. So what they found is that uh, things such as high, high work pressure for staff, perceptions of equal Treatment and discrimination uh, for staff were all very damaging to patient satisfaction. And uh, as already discussed, uh, two of the areas where ethnic minority staff uh, were the worst experiences is equal opportunities and discrimination. And in that paper, I think uh, the summary, almost like a, uh, one of the things that they concluded was that uh, the way an organization treats its ethnic minority staff is almost a barometer. Actually, they described it as a good barometer of how of how well patients are likely to feel cared for in that organization. So organizations with high levels of uh, discrimination against ethnic minority staff, when you talk to patients in that organization, they don't feel uh, as cared for compared to compared to other organizations. And then uh, the last point I make around this is uh, we talked about uh, one of the ways that people perceive racism in the NHS is uh, patients refusing to be treated by someone from an ethnic minority background. What this can do is that patients might actually miss out on being seen by the best clinician. It could be that on that day, the most senior, most experienced, uh, most knowledgeable uh, clinician could be someone from an ethnic minority background. And uh, if patients for racist reasons feel I don't want to be seen by someone from an ethnic minority background, they might be missing out on being treated uh, by the best by the best person. So these are some of the impacts that uh, racism can can have on, on patient care. So, you know, bad for, obviously, the individual staff members affected, you know, bad for organisations and bad for patients. Assuming we, we, we can all agree that we don't want an NHS that tolerates racism. Um, and, you know, hearing the data, it's very clear, very stark. Why do you think it is that, you know, it, it's so persistent, so pervasive, so difficult to tackle effectively? Professor Williams from, from Harvard is probably known as uh, the world leader in uh, ethnic health inequalities, talks about the three barriers to tackling health inequalities, which are political will, empathy gap and, and resources. So if you look at uh, each one of those uh, different, so political will is just about like the leadership in an organization accepting that this is a significant problem that needs to be dealt with. And this will mean leading from the front, uh, making sure that uh, uh, everyone in the organization recognizes 
uh, ethnic inequalities, be it for patients or for staff, as a problem that everyone has to has to be involved in. That has not always been always been the case, uh, and I think in some cases it continues to be a challenge. I think uh, there's still people who uh, in senior positions who do not believe that uh, these uh, ethnic inequalities in the NHS, uh, there are people who genuinely believe that uh, uh, racism isn't there anymore. I think we've touched on it, that uh, their definition of racism maybe does not capture the modern way that racism uh, presents itself. So political will has been a big challenge. Then the other issue is the empathy gap. One of the challenges around the empathy gap is uh, 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 at times relates to the example I gave about uh, uh, if you've got leaders who are not representative of uh, of their workforce. So if uh, uh, the challenges that other people are going through are not a part of your reality, you won't have the, the empathy. Therefore, you won't feel like it's something that you need to to you need you need to tackle. So the thing with the political will and empathy gap they go end in end. Uh, if the leaders or if anyone does not feel this is a problem, then it's going to result in problem number three. They are not going to put in the right resources to tackle the problem. Uh, one of the most uh, uh, successful uh, programs in tackling uh, ethnic inequalities was it. Uh, the university in America. I'll look for the name and then I'll send you the link to the study. So they they dedicated one percent of their budget to say, look, uh, we're going to tackle inequality in our university, and they made sure that uh, everyone at every level was aware of the challenges and that they all had a part to play. Uh, if we look at what happens in the NHS, uh, most organisations will have uh, someone who's called an uh, equality and diversity manager. Uh, sometimes it's a head of uh, equalities. Uh, they tend to be mostly around uh, agenda for change, Band 7 and Band 8. So they're sort of like middle middle managers, but they're not uh, the most senior people in the NHS. And they are then uh, each organization will have like one person looking not just at the workforce, but at staff, uh, uh, not, not just at workforce inequalities, but at patient uh, inequalities as well, and that's just not enough resources. So that has been one of the biggest challenges that uh, uh, there's not been enough resources that have been made available to tackle this problem. So what George Floyd, the death of George Floyd and COVID have done is uh, actually there's now been a lot of investments in uh, in the area of uh, inequalities in general and uh, ethnic inequalities uh, specifically. What I hope is that that investment is going to stay, but uh, we're already starting to see that uh, some of that investment was for a limited period of time. Uh, some of that investment sort of was tied to COVID and uh, as we overcome COVID, some of that investment is being pulled. So for us to really, really uh, make a big difference in this, we need the investment and the resources to be there. And that's not what's been done. Then another challenge as to why uh, things haven't changed is uh, is the constantly changing of initiatives. So uh, 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 there's a lot of acronyms I can just be telling about. Oh, there was uh, 
something called EDS2, then you had EDS1, then you had the RES, then you got this. The NHS is constantly changing the initiatives around tackling inequalities and ethnic inequalities specifically. The problem is, I'll quote what one of the most senior EDM managers in the NHS said. He said, if this was easy, we would have tackled it a long time ago. This is not something that's going to be uh, tackled in three, four years. But what the NHS does is specifically around inequalities, probably more than anything else. After three years, they'll have a look and say, this is not working. Let's try something else. And you try something else, it means you now have to set up new systems, uh, reorientate everyone, get the buy-in. And once that thing is starting to just develop a bit of momentum, people look and say, oh, look, it's four years, it doesn't work. Let's move on to something else. So that's been one big uh, barrier as well. And then aligned to that is just the high turnover rate you get uh, for people working in inequalities in general and uh, ethnic inequality specifically, because it's a tough job to do. People get bent out really quickly. And then people move on and go do something else. And as with every job in every every walk in life, uh, when someone new comes in, they want to put their stamp on it as it were. So when you get someone new, they start changing things again. But new people come in with new ideas, then it's almost like uh, uh, everything that's been done before almost gets forgotten, then they start again. It's almost like starting from zero. So that's one of the reasons as well why things haven't changed as quickly as they should have or they should be. I was thinking as you were talking, Owen, about how, you know, given the context of the NHS in terms of the load that people are carrying generally, you know, the the stretched resources, the emotional demands of the work, um, that, you know, there's a lot of exhaustion around. And I think, you know, there's a danger sometimes with this work being you know, siloed into a particular little part, you know, everyone has to do some mandatory training and that's almost it, or, you know, maybe a bi-monthly committee meeting. And that's really hard to sustain, you know, this real kind of, you know, culture change when people are stretched. And I guess we end up seeing not always the good sides of, of, organizations and systems and, and people when things are hard. Yeah, so there's an uh, overly used phrase in the NHS, which is like uh, the golden thread that runs through everything. And uh, my view is if equalities and uh, including ethnic inequalities was the golden thread that ran through everything, that would definitely lessen the load on uh, equality and diversity managers. The example I always give is like uh, uh, budget management. So in the NHS, regardless of what role you do or are similar, if you've got budget responsibilities, you're expected to work within your budget. If you don't know how to budget, you have to go and learn. But you'll be told that, look, you're going to deliver this service for £100,000, whatever it is, and that's it. And you have to be able to manage that budget. And I almost feel that uh, inequalities has to be treated in the same play, in the same way, that uh, everyone has to be told that look, as part and parcel of your role, we want everyone working with you, under you, to have the same positive experience regardless of their background. 
We want every patient that you treat, regardless of their gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, to have the same positive experience. And for me, if we get to that point where that is the default position, that people see equality as part and parcel of their everyday job, uh, we'll start to see the improvements uh, that we that we want to see. Oh, and have you got any examples for us of initiatives that uh, you've come across that have been effective in producing change? Yes, yeah, so I'll give you two uh, two examples. So one is uh, there's an organisation called North East London Foundation Trust, and uh, when I was uh, working for the NHS England Workforce Race Equality Standard Team, I used to be the lead analyst there. So that organisation went through three years of continuous improvement when you looked at their workforce data. So this is looking at the levels of discrimination, uh, looking at uh, belief in equal opportunities and looking at career progression. So for those three years, you had uh, people from an ethnic background getting promoted and feeling better about working in the organization. So then the question becomes, what did they do? So the first thing that they did is they came up uh, uh, with their strategy, which I think is still available online. I think uh, it was their 2020 strategy at the, at the time. They've since uh, updated it. And uh, that strategy was signed off at every level in the organization. So they made sure that every team in the organization was aware of that strategy. And then they signed up, say, yeah, you know what, as a team, we sign up to this to this strategy. So this wasn't just something which the quality and diversity manager was doing. This was something which the whole organization was doing. Then the other thing that they did as well is that in that strategy, uh, every board member had to sign up to it as well. So this wasn't just something which is going to be done by the uh, chief people officer, but every board member was aware that, look, I have a role to play in this as well. And then uh, importantly, uh, the organization, I think it touches on about what I said before, they just didn't uh, start off and stop. They were actually working on this for a long period of time before they started seeing those three years of year-on-year improvement, which I think is really, really, really important to for people to understand that this wasn't like a one year, two years, or oh, let's try it. No, no. They actually went for like two, three years before they started seeing those year-on-year year year, uh, improvements. And then most importantly for that organization at the time, uh, uh, their CEO was a gentleman called uh, John Browder. And uh, uh, what John Browder used to do is uh, in the NHS, when you've got new members of staff starting, uh, you, you have this induction. So it's like a day where you go and you're told about the organization strategy. You do your like uh, uh, information governance training and everything else. So, uh, John as the CEO would go to that induction and then he would uh, tell people clearly that look for this organization uh, we're here to provide excellent clinical care and one of our key priorities is tackling ethnic inequalities and you make clear that as you walk into this organization I don't care what job you're doing those two things are really important and you are going to play a part in it so it sets the tone for someone getting into the organization so you already know that, look, I'm coming to an organization where uh, ethnic inequalities are not, are, not, are not tolerated. So that's probably, I think, one of the most successful organizations or initiatives 
around tackling ethnic inequalities and the energies that I've come across here. So, so what you've described, how, you know, the strategy is really embedded, um, you know, from top to bottom and, as you said, kind of setting the tone, a real kind of cultural message of priority. I'm curious about the, the whether there are particular, um, you know, strategic measures within um, the strategy that were particularly helpful and important or whether you think kind of just setting the tone and, and, and the embedding of it um, was key. One of the things that they did was, uh, uh, because it was uh, embedded everywhere, they had the governance behind it as well. So like uh, uh, one of the things they did around recruitment was having a diverse interview panel. So you will find that I think now it's like uh, uh, the talking thing every organization say they do. They're all looking you know at, uh, well, We'll just get uh, someone with a bit of melanin on the interview panel, then everything's okay. Let's just get a woman on the interview panel, then everything's okay. But what they did is they said, look, they uh, put governance in place. One was the people were supposed to be the, on the interview panel were trained to say, like, this is what a fair interview looks like. So your role there is beyond just uh, representing uh, people from an ethnic background. Your role is there in part as an advisor and as like, I don't use the word referee, but as someone who understands how a fair process looks like. And that person was also given the authority to say, if you feel or you see something in that interview that doesn't feel right, you escalate it. So that's extra governance. So uh, what examples of this happen in other organizations or the job, oh, come on, let's just get an Owen on the panel. And then you get there and it's quite clear that, uh, uh, that the scoring doesn't work or there's a preferred candidate. But in that organization, the, the governance to say, right, uh, this is not just about doing it. This is about making sure that uh, you do it and you do it right. So it's not only having the strategy, it's having the governance in place as well and implementing it fully. Was there a second example, Owen, of... Yeah, so the the second example I'm going to give is... a. a I won't name the the organization, but what, but I'll tell you what happened. So they were recruiting a new team, and then we were called to come and say, "Oh, look, can you check uh, whether this is a fair process or not?" Uh, so the first thing we asked for was like uh, uh, the uh, demographics of the people who had been shortlisted, and it was quite apparent that uh, uh, for one of the roles uh, they'd only listed uh, men. For some of the roles, there was no one from an ethnic minority background at all. So generally, the uh, it was quite clear that uh, with uh, the shortlisting that had been done, they're not going to get uh, the outcome that they wanted. So uh, what then happened is they went back and said, okay, this is not going to work. So they stopped the interview process then and there, which is really important. So it's about showing that leadership that as soon as people could see that we're not going to get the outcome that they want, they were brave enough to say we're going to stop things. Whereas normally people just say, okay, no, let's do it and then do it as lessons learned later. So they then changed the interview process completely. So instead of shortlisting, they went for something called long listing. So what that does is uh, uh, it removes some of the biases that happens at shortlisting. And they also went for something called batch recruitment, where you don't interview for one job at a time, you interview for multiple jobs at the same time. And then they also had like uh, 
uh, diverse interview panels. So each interview panel had to be diverse. And then they also did uh, something called blind auditioning. So the way blind auditioning works is, uh, so let's say it's you and me, Paula, we're interviewing for a producer for a podcast. And all we get is we're just told that uh, uh, the person you're going to interview has got the qualifications for the job. So you don't know their name. You know nothing about them. So the first time, the only interaction you have with that person is when they walk into the room. So you don't have any preconceived ideas. And uh, by making those changes in the recruitment process, uh, what happened is that in that organization, they ended up appointing, I think more than 60% of the people appointed into senior positions were were female. And uh, I think about uh, 40% were people from an ethnic minority background. So by showing good leadership, strong leadership, changing the processes, getting the right things in place, they're able to achieve what they wanted. I read recently in the BMJ, um, we're looking into the inequalities for referrals around complaints to the GMC, the uh, General Medical Council. Um, and there was you know, a, a kind of known disparity in that more people from black and minority ethnic groups were going through to complaint level than white people, doctors. And they changed the process so that, that those applications were anonymous. And the, the impact of that was that the racial disparities disappeared. So something as, I guess, straightforward as anonymizing those applications was able to remove the bias inherent in the process. Yes, yeah. I, I think it's something which happens all the time. I mean, it's not just around uh, ethnicity as well. So obviously, we've got the usual examples where uh, people send the same CV with different names and you get different outcomes. And you've got examples of like uh, when people used to audition to be in an orchestra, that uh, when people would hear the footsteps, this person is wearing heels, immediately they'd, uh, they'd score them differently. But when they started having people walking in barefoot, they saw that actually the number of women who started getting in were much higher because they had no idea. So we know that there are in inherent biases. What I would say is what needs to be done is exactly what was done in this case, where you anonymize it and you always look at the outcome to say, right, what can we do to get the outcome that we want? And where in our process are they most likely to be biased? And in most cases, you get the bias where people are able to distinguish between people of different characteristics. I remember in uh, 2010, 11, the NHS runs its uh, graduate management scheme. And uh, uh, at that time, people from an ethnic minority background were significantly under underrepresented. So what they did is uh, uh, they worked with a company that understood some of the biases. So what they did is they said, right, uh, remove photos and names from all applications. They started having uh, more like uh, uh, online tests for some of the things to say, right, uh, you just get in there and then you enter your, your, your responses. You've just got a number. So you're candidate one, candidate two. And by making those changes and removing any points where people would be able to identify who you are, your characteristics, they actually saw uh, that uh, for the next cohort, uh, the proportion of people from an ethnic minority background was representative of the applications. So, so it's something that uh, 
I very much support that. If you could review all your processes, identify where uh, the inequalities are, where, yes, where you might be swayed one way or the other by someone's uh, characteristics and try to uh, resolve that. And I guess what feels challenging about that is owning and accepting an innate bias that as a white person, if I'm on a panel, um, I'm likely to, whatever my conscious mind might want to convince me of, I'm likely to favour someone with a white sounding name. And that's not a nice thing to have to accept about myself. And I guess I'm wondering if that is part of the barrier too, that in order to make these changes, we have to accept, we have to name it, that we do hold biases and that's part of the problem. Yeah, and uh, I think uh, one of the things we do not have conversations enough about uh, is exactly that, to say, look, uh, we all have biases and we we know that uh, people from certain backgrounds are disproportionately affected by those biases. And part and parcel of uh, what we need to do to tackle the inequalities is to have more of those conversations to get people to understand that uh, this is not about someone accusing you of being a racist or, or, or something. This is about saying, look, there's something in our systems that results in uh, people from an ethnic minority background having worse experiences and less opportunities. And then trying to identify what those challenges are and working together to, to to tackle them. And part of that conversation is about acknowledging that there are biases in our systems, be it at an individual or at a systematic level. There are biases that are inherent in how we how we do things, and it's about how do we work through them in a way that benefits everyone. And Part of it is, like you said, accepting that, look, we, we all have biases. And uh, as long as we know what those biases are, how they affect us and mitigate against them. So what would you say um, to people listening to this about what we might be able to do on an individual level to tackle this? So so there are three things I'd say uh, people need to do. So the first thing is to look at uh, uh, the data for your organisation, if, if it exists at all. So whether you're... Uh, a psychologist like yourself, whether you're an occupational therapist, whether you're a nurse, just look at the data and say, in your organization, what's the career progression like? Where do people sit in uh, uh, in leadership? Is it representative of uh, of the workforce? Is it representative of your of your patient groups? If you're not collecting that data yet, then challenge people to say, say oh, look, we need to start collecting the data and analyzing it that way. Take a look at like... Uh, just going to say a psychologist because you're here with me. Look at uh, your patient group, right? Are there any patients who either got a higher dropout rate by ethnicity? Uh, what's the proportion of patients who we refer on to something else or something? Just look at the data and see what it tells you. So that alone is the first thing you need to do. Look at the data for your organization, for workforce and for patients, or if you don't work in healthcare, uh, for, your, for your clients, because uh, this could be, a business opportunity if you're a business that caters only to people of certain ethnicities, there's a whole group of other ethnic ethnicities who you might be missing out on. And then the uh, the second thing is to uh, have have conversations in your organization about ethnic inequalities. 
so when I'm doing presentations, uh, there's a video I normally play, which is of the South African rugby team, the, the Springboks. I'm, I'm a big rugby fan. Go Springboks. Apologize to apologize to my uh, no apologies needed, Owen. We're <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> apologies to our, our English listeners here. So uh, uh, what it is once again, we'll put in the link to the video uh, below, so you can jump to about uh, eight minutes. So one of the things that uh, Rasi did when he took over the Springboks is that uh, uh, at the time uh, there was a push to have more diversity in South African rugby. And uh, there was always the pushback that uh, you're lowering the standard. You want just to have uh, tokenism. But he doubled down. He didn't. You actually said, you know what? Actually, no. I want the team to be representative of the nation. So instead of pushing back, I just said, you're going to do it. And within the team itself, he realized that uh, people didn't understand the issues around race. So in the same team, you have uh, someone like Mapimbi, who's who came from some of the worst deprivation ever. And then you've got other players who came from significant wealth and they're playing the same team and they didn't understand what that is. So what he did is at the start, he made them sit in a room, depending on where you're from, for hours to talk about the issues, to say, right, you need to understand where everyone is coming from. You need to have the conversations about uh, ethnic inequalities. You need to understand why people are clamoring to have more black players, to have more players who look like them in the spring box. And by doing that, it actually brought the team closer because they now understood each other together. They're now able to work together with purpose. And against all odds, they went on to win the World Cup in 2019. Right? And then the last thing I'd say is uh, go out and read books. So there, there are a lot of books that are, that are available there on uh, issues around... Uh, uh, ethnic inequalities. Uh, I, I've read uh, quite a few, and what I've discovered is uh, the most well-known books, without naming them, are not the ones I enjoyed the most. So I'm someone who's got a data background, research evidence. Uh, the one that I enjoyed the most was one called uh, Diversify by uh, June Sapong, because it's actually like research-based. So she actually do research, lots of data, a lot of articles saying this is what this is. So for me, that's the one that resonated with me the most. There are other ones which people tell of a personal story to say this is what I went through. So it's not uh, research evidence, it's just someone telling this is what I went through. And there are other people who find that more appealing. So what I'll say is go look for a book around there. There are so many of them and look for one that will resonate with you and then just read it. And then the last one is a uh, support those who are trying to make a difference. So as mentioned before, these are not, uh, the jobs look more glamorous on Twitter than they do in real life. They're very challenging jobs. And if you've got someone in your team, in your organization, who's doing something on tackling inequalities or specifically ethnic inequalities, when you see them, just give them a pat on the back and uh, ask them, how can I how can I help? And uh, find a way to, to work with them to make a positive difference. And I wonder if I could ask you what kind of sustains you, what nurtures you, what keeps you going in doing the hard work that you do? Oh, okay. Uh, right. So one of the things is I I run a lot. So I, uh, I, I, I exercise so that uh, I call it my mental exorcism. So like at the end of a hard day or something, if I want to clear my mind, I go for, I go for a run. But uh, uh, 
the other really important thing, which I'd say to everyone listening on the podcast, is uh, have a good network. Have someone that you can you can talk to. I'm blessed to have some uh, some friends and some uh, role models and uh, people I look up to. People like uh, my boss Habib, uh, Yvonne Kogil. Uh, uh, I'm part of a group of uh, uh, Zimbabweans who call ourselves Progressive Minds. We catch up uh, every fortnight just to have a chat, just to, uh, you call it debrief, and to learn. So, look, this is what's happened. So that's really, really important. That's what sustains me, knowing that I've got uh, all these people out there. And also, importantly, uh, I know that some of the work I'm doing is making a difference. Uh, maybe not at a national system level, but uh, on the odd occasion, someone will call you and say, oh, look, uh, you know what, Owen, uh, because of this work that you did, this is how I personally benefited from it. Thank you. And that, that always makes it so much so much worthwhile. So, okay, look, maybe we haven't got rid of all the inequalities in the NHS, but I managed to get rid of the inequalities for that one person. And that one person's life is much better. It always makes such a, a big difference. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please do share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. I'd love to connect with you, so do come and find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also sign up to my mailing list to keep up to date with future episodes and get useful psychology advice and tips straight to your inbox. All the links are in the show notes. Thanks again and until next time, take good care.